Well, hello, Cornwall Church. How are you doing today? <laughs> this side is more awake. It is apparent. So this side, how are you doing today? That did not actually improve. Okay. It's good to have you here in the room. It's good to have you in Skagit Online, Gym Church. Welcome to Cornwall. I am pumped to be with you this weekend and next weekend. If we've not yet met, my name is Brian. I'm our online campus pastor. And if we haven't met, I actually want to introduce you to my family. This is my family of four, Shauna, Alyssa, Dylan, and me. And Shauna pictured here, coincidentally, today is our 18-year anniversary. Thank you. We'll, um, we'll have a gift table up front right after the service. You can just drop and and go. Uh, Shauna and I, 18 years. Alyssa in the picture here just turned 16. She's driving. You've been warned. And Dylan is our brand new middle schooler. And I love my family. I love adventuring with them and creating memories with them. And this might be hard to believe, but we laugh a lot. Um, I, I fiercely fight for my family. I love my family so much. You know, what else I love is this place. Disneyland. It is arguably the happiest place on earth. I, I love Disneyland. It fills me. It fuels me. I love the sights and the sounds and the smells and the rides and Mickey. I just love all things that are Disneyland. Now, because I'm kind of on a roll here, now this is a judgment-free zone, right? Like, I love French fries. I love French fries. You can have ice cream. You can have candy bars. I will take French fries any day of the week. It's kind of my guilty vice. I love Red Robin steak fries. I love Chick-fil-A waffle fries. Like if they are perfectly fried and perfectly salted, I love French fries. You know, actually, where you can get the best French fries or some really great French fries? This place. T-Mobile Park. Garlic fries. Thank you. Interactive sermon. I love you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, if wa waffle fry, or sorry, garlic fry. Look what you've done to me now. Garlic fries at T-Mobile Park. I love the Seattle Mariners, win or lose. I love the Mariners. I love being there, the open air. I love uh, watching the Mariners play. It's, it's a great, great time. So I, I love these things. Now, conversely, there are some things I don't much love, like I dislike a lot. Like my family would tell you that I can turn grumpy like that if I get traffic. Like, come on, right? Like you're driving, you're driving, and all of a sudden, boom, it's like bumper to bumper traffic. I figure if we would just all learn how to drive and use the merge lanes and go the appropriate speed, we would never have traffic. But in the meantime, I hate traffic with a passion. You know what else I hate? I hate, I hate weeds. Anyone else hate weeds? Like a couple weeks ago, yeah, I see you. A couple weeks ago, I was weeding in our backyard and uh, like for hours and hours and hours. And at the very end, I was so proud of the work I'd done, dripping in sweat and accomplishment. And I realized a couple days later when I went to lay bark, the weeds were back, like just tons of them, like reproduced weeds right there. I, I hate weeds so much. I hate one more thing worse than weeds, and that's these guys, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes. I hate mosquitoes. D define the translation for mosquito is tiny fly. In the biblical Greek, mosquito actually means spawn of Satan, I think. We'll have to check with Kip on that. 
But I hate mosquitoes. You know, nothing can ruin a day at the lake or fishing or a hike than mosquitoes. Like, what's the point? No one likes mosquitoes. See, here's the thing. You and I, we have probably a mental list of the things that we love and the things that we hate. And, And believe it or not, so does God. God has a list of things he loves and hates. And in this two-week mini-series, next weekend, we're going to look at the things God loves. And this weekend, we're going to look at the things God hates. How about that for a Father's Day message? Dads, God loves you, but there's things he hates too. Happy Father's Day. Now, perhaps, perhaps this idea of God hating, that's, uh, that's new to you. Or it maybe is making you a bit uneasy, and that's okay, because I found a recent uh, survey done uh, that said many people polled had no idea that God hates things. Some of them said, but wait a second, isn't God all about love? And the answer is yes, and. You see, God is love, but is capable of hate. God is love, but he's capable of hate. We know God is loved, like beloved by us. We know that he is loving in the best expression of the word. We know that he is lovely, not like a Valentine's Day lovely, but like a true form of lovely. And ultimately, 1 John 4.16 tells us simply, God is love. Perfect definition. So if that is true, if it's true that God loves all that is good and pure and holy, it must also be true that God hates all things that are evil and sinful. I remember being a kid and being told, Brian, don't say hate. It's a very strong word. But the truth is God does have things that he hates, hates and loathes and detests. So what makes the list? Solomon will answer the question for us. In chapter 6, Solomon writes about several topics, financial matters and work ethics and choices we make, and he also gives us the list of things God hates. And Solomon makes it really clear that God doesn't just hate these behaviors, he actually finds them detestable. So what are they? Let's look at them. In chapter 6, verse 16, it starts this way. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. In case there was any question, God does hate More than dislike or disgust, God hates every action on this list that involves our eyes, our tongue, our hands, our heart, our feet, and any action involving speech or dissension. Now, let's be really clear before we move on. One, God is not defined by hatred. He's not defined by hatred. Of the nearly 200 references or mentions of hate in Scripture, This passage, this one passage is the one that talks about God's hate. That means 0.005% of the mentions of hate in the Bible are related to God's hate. Like John 15, 18, we see, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Or 
Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up quarrels, but love makes up for all offenses. Or Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Yes, God is capable of hate, but it does not define him. Two, God doesn't hate people. After all, we are made in his image. That's critical to understand to keep the text in context. In fact, moreover, what we hear about God is true, that God is a God of love. Our God is the for God so loved the world God. Our God is the slow to anger, abounding in love God. Our God is the let us love one another for love comes from God, God. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's next weekend. One more thing to note. It's important that we see God's hate is a position, not a feeling. God's hatred is a position, not a feeling. It's really important that we understand the difference because they are extremely different. It's feeling versus fact. Our human hatred is feeling-based. God's hatred is fact-based. When the Bible speaks of God hating something, it's really a position taken against. In fact, the Hebrew word for hate means literally to be set against. So when the Bible mentioned God hates something, it means he is set against it. He's positionally against it. So let's take a look at some of these things God hates. And topping the list, God hates pride. God hates pride. Your version might say haughty eyes, a proud look, or arrogant eyes, but they all reference the same thing, pride. This idea that one is better than another or a spirit of superiority. Johann Piera says this. He says, haughty eyes are the spirit that makes one overestimate themselves and underestimate others. In other words, a different way to say it is an attitude that overvalues self and undervalues others. Now, as I did research this week, I found many biblical scholars agree that haughty eyes or pride leads the list of God's hates because it is especially dangerous. Author C.S. Lewis would say this, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the gateway. It's the doorway. It leads to every other vice, every other sin, everything else on the list. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And the truth is, you know this, pride can do significant damage. Pride can break up a marriage. It can ruin a friendship. It can destroy your employment. It can obliterate your reputation, and it can keep you from being right with God. Proverbs 11.2 says, pride leads to arrogance. Humility comes from wisdom. Look at the progression. Pride leads to disgrace. The, the Bible says also that pride will go before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Scripture, every example you will find, pride is illustrated by failure, never success. Take Uzziah for example. So when Isaiah is writing his book, he begins by naming the four kings that would rule over Judah during his lifetime. That would be Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
And as he starts writing about Uzziah, he starts out right. He is a man of God. He is faithful to God's commands. He is obedient. In fact, Scripture would say he walked in the fear of the Lord. He honored God, and God was faithful to him and his people. In fact, uh, uh, he was doing so well that the text says that his fame spread as far as the borders of Egypt, like people were hearing about this faithful man. He was faithful for years and years until he wasn't. He got prideful. He decided to start making his own choices, that he wasn't having to be held to anyone's standard. He started stealing God's glory and his credit. And 2 Chronicles says, but after Uzziah became powerful, catch this, his pride led to his downfall. He was humble and became arrogant He thought he was so powerful, could make his own decisions, even played the role of a priest, which was strictly prohibited. A man of great faith and power and position would eventually die a lonely leper and never step foot in the temple again. God doesn't mess around when it comes to our pride. And pride can manifest itself in tons of different ways. Maybe most often is that intellectual pride. It's that know-it-all pride, like I know more and I'm going to let you know I know more. There's positional pride. That's, you know, position and achievement and power and uh, superiority. There's political pride, like my party is better. My party is right. Our platform is stronger. My candidate is better. There's physical pride, that's the more and the mosts. Like, I wish I was more beautiful. I wish I was the most handsome. And pride is a universal problem. And so like Uzziah, Christians are not immune. Beth Moore would say this, let's not fool ourselves into thinking pride is a problem only for the lost. The most effective means the enemy has to keep believers from being full of the Spirit is to keep them full of themselves. Spiritual pride, it's a thing, and it can get us into trouble. Whether it's the belief that I know more about the Bible and the history and the Old Testament, and I've got more things memorized than you, it could be denominational pride. We Baptists are better than you uh, uh, Lutherans. Pride can get us into trouble. Jesus is very, very clear. Regardless of which kind of pride it is, he says, whoever exalts himself, insert pride here, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, the opposite, he will be exalted. If you ever need a reminder of what pride is all about, look to the center of the word. It's the letter I. Pride is all about you, me, ourselves. And that should be a gut check because number one, God hates pride. He hates it. Tops the list. As we start to go down the list, he also hates lying. God hates liars. I read this story about these four college students on a fall day decided to go out for a drive and be late to class. When they finally arrived, they checked in with the professor and said, sorry, we're late. We got a flat tire. The professor took their excuse and said, no problem, but we did take a quiz. I need you to take that quiz right now. He sent all four students to the four corners of the room and handed them their quiz with one question on it. Which tire was flat? (laughs) Lying 
gets us into trouble, into messy situations. And lying makes several lists in the Bible. This one, and notably the Ten Commandments, Lying's mentioned multiple times because we probably need multiple reminders because lying, if we're being honest, is really easy. It kind of rolls off the tongue. The most simplistic definition of lying is a deception in speech. There's a book called The Day America Told the Truth. And in this book, it's tons of different um, uh, examples and surveys and studies. What they found was that 91% of the people they surveyed said they routinely lie about trivial matters. 36% said they lie about important matters. 86% say they lie to their parents. 75% say they regularly lie to friends. 73% say they regularly lie to siblings. And 70% say they often lie to their spouses. Let's be really clear. God is not okay with 100% of those lies. And let's clear the air and get rid of the gray area right up front. Obviously, falsifying is lying. Knowing denial is lying. Telling a half-truth, lying. Omission, lying. Exaggeration, lying. Little white lies, lying. Typically, most people have kind of a mental list of the things that they could fudge on with telling the truth. And then the things that most definitely I would never lie about. But truth be told, there's no difference. Like a lie is a lie. And just like there is nothing new under the sun, we can trace the history of lying all the way back to a day in a garden with a piece of fruit and a serpent. You see, lying hasn't changed. Our motive to lie hasn't changed. However, our impact, our creativity, and the speed at which a lie can travel has changed. Winston Churchill would say this, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. In other words, a lie that is said to someone one minute here could be tweeted and shared and posted one minute later over here. The impact is almost instant. And lying may benefit you in the moment, or it might get you out of a consequence in the moment, but lying never, ever has the long-term effect we hope for. Because at some point, the lie gets unveiled, or the lie gets refuted, and nobody wins. The liar doesn't win. The one lied to doesn't win. The circumstance falls into question. The eventual consequence still occurs. Hurt is experienced. Trust is hijacked. And our testimony is marred. You've likely never noticed this on me, but on my left hand, my left thumb, I have a three-inch scar. Now, I wish there was a really cool story attached to this scar, like I was climbing in the mountains and I was holding on to a ledge or I was out in the woods and I got attacked by a mountain lion, but neither of those happened. It's actually quite a lame story, but it's a great reminder for me when it comes to lying. I was a a kid, I think in elementary school and growing up, my dad owned a dental lab business. And so we had, he had tons of dental tools and instruments uh, around. And one day I was in his office and I found a knife tool. To give you kind of a a visual, it looked more like a a scalpel handle with a sharp blade at the end. 
And I remember uh, holding it and I had, there was a piece of paper and I just started like slicing this paper. And I was like, that is a clean cut. That's cool. But then I got bored with that. And I happened to look down, there was like a ball of wax or something to that effect. And I took this knife, this scalpel, and I start shaping it and cutting it. And it just cuts like butter. And then I got bored with that. And I happened to look to my left and there it is, a number two pencil that was a bit dull. And I thought, this knife can remedy that. So I grabbed the pencil and I grabbed the knife and I just start shaving the top and just making this beautifully sharped pencil. But then one miscalculated swipe and I sliced my thumb right open. Panic and blood at the exact same time. I remember rushing to the bathroom and, and wrapping it with toilet paper, but man, this thing was bleeding. And I can't really tell you what happened next because either I blacked out or I've blocked it from my memory. But I do know that my dad eventually asked, Brian, what happened? And as a good church Awana going boy, I totally lied about it. I fabricated some story about, Dad, I don't know, I was, I was using scissors and I just slipped and... My dad said, okay, all right. And we got it all bandaged up and everything was good until the truth eventually was revealed. Proverbs 12, 19 said, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. To this day, this scar is my little lie reminder because it's true, a lying tongue lasts only a moment, but sometimes the consequence can last forever. See, we're human, and our human nature will always default to what produces the least pain and avoid the most trouble. And so lying is often our go-to, but we can't live there. We can't say, sorry, Lord, I'm just human. Because as Christ followers, we know better. We gotta act on this. We know lying does not produce anything beneficial or productive and certainly isn't God-honoring and is not indicative of our faith at all. Lying is completely the opposite of the nature of God. Imagine had Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth most of the time, and I am the life. People would kind of question, who is, what? I don't know if I want to trust that guy. Hebrews 6.18 tells us quite clearly, it is impossible for God to lie. So we've got to do our best to do the same so that we might be able to say what David would write in Psalm 34. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Bottom line is this, in every opportunity that you have to lie or mislead, inaccurately represent, fabricate, exaggerate, or any situation where you have to calculate how much, how severe is the lie I'm going to tell, stop. A lie is a lie. There's not any gray area. Proverbs 12, tells us the Lord hates, detests, despises lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. God hates pride. God hates lying. Number four on the list, God hates evil plotting. He hates evil plotting. In 1962, the Walt Disney Company introduced a new term, imagineering. 
They combine the word imagination and engineering to make imagineering. And the purpose was to describe, to best describe, all of the employees that were creatively working behind the scenes to bring magic into the Walt Disney parks. The illustrators and the architects and the engineers and the firework designers, the lighting experts, the costume designers, the songwriters, the show writers, the graphic artists, and more. All of the creative people working behind the scenes, their new title was Imagineers. I recently watched a documentary on the Imagineers at Disney and found that Disney Imagineers, there's no typical day. There's no office hours. One of them said this, if you're in a Disney park, you're at work. And if you're not in a park, you need to be imagineering what you could bring to the park. You see, every single day, Disney Imagineers are tasked with one thing, dream big for the benefit of others. Dream big for the imagination for the benefit of others. Now, I get it, like that is a unique situation. Most of us don't get paid to plan and plot happiness for other people. Kevin Cabal says this, he said, God created our minds to imagine good things. However, when we use our heart and mind to imagine evil things, it is a terrible misuse of God's handiwork. See, our brain is very important. Our brain is important for processing the how, but our brain executes whatever your heart fabricates. Our hearts are where the evil plots are generated. Matthew 15, 19 says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Think about the last time you watched a great movie or, or, or read a book, and as you're watching or reading, everything is going great. The characters have been introduced, everyone's happy, and everything's going well, until the evil-minded, dream-killing antagonist arrives on the scene. Darth Vader, the, the Joker, the Wicked Witch of the West, they all plot evil from their hearts. They all have the same goal, to disrupt peace and harmony. They want the worst for those in the story. Now, I would hope that you've not plotted anything to the extent of these three, but maybe it's something similar to a student uh, plotting how he can cheat on a test without getting caught. Perhaps it's an employee plotting how to set up a coworker to fail. Perhaps it's a husband or a wife plotting how they can deceive their spouse so they can be with someone else. Okay, hang on a second then. What if I just think it and then I quickly dismiss it and I never act on it? Satan loves that thinking. Satan is really good at duping us into thinking, well, if we just think it, it's not really that bad. But we know that's false. We know that's incorrect. We know, God knows, the secrets of our hearts. So there's no use in thinking it and thinking we can bottle it up inside and that God will never know. So we have to stay away from plotting evil schemes and instead do what is hard. We have to plot to love others. It's the exact opposite of what those antagonists were trying to do. We've got to plot intentionally to love other people. And Luke 6, 27 and 28 gives us the best blueprint Four things, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who hurt you. Four really easy things to do, right? It's our calling to plot, not evil, but good, to love and do good and bless and pray. God hates a heart that plots evil. So one more. God hates disunity. He hates disunity. We're going to land the plane for here for a minute because church, we're at church. I'm talking to church. It's important for us to get this, church. God places a high premium on peace. First, he wants to make sure that you and he are good. That's repentance. That's faith. That's forgiveness. It's reconciliation. In Romans 5, 1, it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have a peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants a unity, a clean unity with him. And second, he wants to make sure that you have a unity or a peace with others. Ephesians 4.3 calls us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Three parts there. Make every effort, that's the work, To what? Keep the unity of the spirit of peace and through what? Through the bond of peace. Unity is not something that just happens. It's not something that just appears or forms on its own. That's why Paul would say, make every effort. He knew it was going to take work, hard work. And knowing that God hates, loathes, detests his people being dis, or not in unity, we should want to really make that effort to be unified together, to live in peace. So that means doing everything we can to be at peace and to be unified with others. So it means affirming and encouraging others. It means showing up with open hands. It means rallying other people. It means conceding your idea because the best idea wins even if it's not yours, pride, first point. Now, it's worth noting that unity and agreement are not the same. Unity and agreement are not the same. We all don't have to agree on something to be unified around it. In fact, it, let's say it's an idea, it could be great, it could be good, it could be not so good, it could be terrible. But it really doesn't matter at the end of the day as long as we are unified together. We're in this together. I would rather fail with a unified team than succeed amidst opposition. Winston Churchill once said, when there there is no enemy within, the enemies outside can't hurt you. So where do you in your life need to make every effort for unity? Is it at home? Is it at the office? Is it at an upcoming summer family gathering? Is it with your spouse? Is it with your kids? Is it with a friend? Or maybe it's someone here at church. Perhaps, or especially at church, this is critical. God despises dissension and division because believers are meant to, designed to, live in community of unity. 
We're on the front lines. People are watching us. Well, they keep talking about being for one another, but man, they can't even get it right in the building. David would write in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. He wasn't being sarcastic. He might not have been optimistic. He was being realistic. That's so great when the church is together and unified. You know, we don't have to agree on the next sermon series or the songs in the worship set or the lighting or the sound or the volume or the Christmas decor. We only have to agree, agree and be unified and rally around the one thing that brought us here. That's Jesus. It starts with him. It starts with us. We have to be for one another. John 13 reminds us that it is our love for one another that people outside the walls will know, oh, that person is a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, I have to be for you. I've got to be for you. And conversely, I need you to be for me. Liberals have got to be for conservatives, and conservatives have got to be for liberals. Boomers, we've got to be for millennials and Gen Zers. Lord, give us patience. And Gen Zers and millennials, put down your phone for just a minute and give us some grace. The older generation, be for us. We have to be for one another. We have to be willing to make uh, every effort for that spirit of unity. We should be exhausted to work at keeping peace among us. And that requires some initiative. The initiative of engaging in the awkward, stepping into the uncomfortable in order to find peace, in order to be unified. My best friend, John, lives in Bend, Oregon. And when I was in Bend with our family, I was a youth pastor there, and he was one of my middle school leaders. And, and despite our friendship, a little issue created a riff in our relationship. And with neither one of us addressing it, before we knew it, we realized we were living in the reality of disunity. Now, I should mention John is a pleaser with a capital P, and he and I don't love confrontation. But it was John who called us out and he called us up, and John made the effort, took the initiative to regain the spirit of unity between us. Not because we went to the same church, not because we served in the same ministry, not even because we were friends, but because we're called to it as fellow Christ followers. It was a tough conversation. It was a real conversation, and I would say it was a pivotal moment for our friendship. So what about you? Does that need to happen at work or on a team or at home or with someone here in the church? Because let me tell you this very stark reality. Showing up and coexisting in the facade of peace and unity doesn't work. It doesn't work. You have to be unified. It has to be authentic. So don't let a crack become a chasm. Do the work, find and fight for sincere, authentic unity with our brothers and sisters. And why? Why is that so important? Because God hates the alternative. 
Scripture says he hates the alternative. He hates us being disunified. He hates us being at odds. He hates us being in opposition and infighting. He hates us creating evil plots for one another. He hates us in being prideful. He hates disunity. He hates the alternative. Billy Graham once said this. He said, we the church have failed to remind the next generation that yes, God is love, but God has the capacity to hate. He hates sin. This next generation, he says, finds it difficult to believe that God can hate. I tell you that God hates just like a father hates a rattlesnake threatening the safety of his child. God hates evil forces that pull his people down. It is his love for us that prompts God to hate sin with an absolute vengeance. Perhaps today, the reality of God hating is new and you want to sit on that. Perhaps you want to dive a little deeper on the things we didn't talk about. Perhaps this will cause some self-reflection and some adjustments in how you act, how you think, how you speak. But a word of warning with that, as you reflect, do not compare and evaluate and fall into a trap of guilt. It's not the point of the passage. Our life as a Christ follower is not about legalism. We are graded on a curve of grace. We're graded on a curve of grace. We get to succeed and we get to sink. We get to, to flourish and we get to fail. The Bible says that we're on equal playing field. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all. All means all. That doesn't mean Jesus hands out free passes for us. It means because we live in grace, because of a loving God, we get to fail, we get to be forgiven, we get to make adjustments, and we get to try again. So the challenge is really this, to intentionally live and act differently. One click. What change can you make in your heart, in your actions, in your thinking, in your words? Can you replace haughty eyes and pride with a vision to see the good around you, the good people, the good places, and appreciate that? Can you replace lies with words of truth and encouragement? Replace evil plotting with a heart that wants the best and the most interest for other people? Can you replace dissension with an effort to create and sustain unity with those around you? We can't settle for what we've got on our own. We've got to be transformed. And it's through that transformation that the things God hates, the things on this list that God hates, will become less and less attractive and natural and enticing. Like pride will feel ugly. Lying will feel unnatural. It will hurt your heart to form evil plans. And you will feel lost without a community. God loves each one of you, but he hates evil. And he hates what evil can do in your life if it's left unchecked. So let's hate what God hates so much so that we rid it from our lives as best we can. May we not be content to live where we are, but to desire to grow in a maturity in Christ as we live as best as like Jesus.